Hey, Unexplained Ones, this is Dr. Mounts, and thanks for tuning in to All Things Unexplained, where we talk about everything from Bigfoot to UFOs to astrophysics and everything in between. So if that sort of thing is for you, make sure to follow us wherever you podcast, along with a review and a rating. It takes a lot to get All Things Unexplained on the air, and this podcast is made possible by listeners like you. You can support the show by checking us out on Linktree at A-T-U Podcast. That's A-T-U Podcast. There you'll find links to all our socials. You can support us on Venmo. You can purchase your official All Things Unexplained merchandise. And you can even book us on Cameo. And now, let's get to the show. All Things Unexplained, hosted by Dr. Mounts. Let's face it, we were always ready to roll without him anyway. <laughs> CJ Derringer. Ain't nobody perfect, right? And Smitty Neves. I've never planned out hardly anything my whole life. I just free ball. Featuring Cajun Man. I'm just old nobody, somebody looking for somebody. May 17th, 2022, the hearing on government investigation of UFOs. Representative Mike Gallagher asked Ronald Moultrie, Undersecretary of Defense, and Scott Bray, Director of Naval Intelligence, about the 1967 Malmstrom incident in Montana. There have been UAP observed uh, and interacting with and flying over sensitive military facilities, particularly, and not just ranges, but uh, some facilities housing our strategic nuclear forces. Uh, one such incident allegedly occurred uh, uh, at Malmstrom Air Force Base, in which 10 of our nuclear ICBMs were rendered inoperable. At the same time, a glowing red orb was observed overhead. I'm not commenting on the accuracy of this. I'm simply asking you whether you're aware of it and whether you have any comment on the accuracy of that report. Let me pass that to Mr. Bray. You've been looking at UAPs over the last That's, three years. Uh, that data is not uh, within the holdings of the UAP task force. Okay, but are you aware of the, the report or that the data exists somewhere? Uh, I have... Uh, I have heard stories. I have not seen the official data on that. So you've just seen informal stories, no official assessment that you've done or exists within DOD that you're aware of uh, regarding the Malmstrom incident? Uh, all I can speak to is, you know, what's within my cognizance, the UAP task force, and we have not looked at that incident. Well, I would say, I mean, it's a pretty high-profile incident. Uh, I, I don't claim to be an expert on this, but that's out there in the ether. You're, you're the guys investigating it. I mean, if, who else is doing it? If something was officially brought to our attention, we would look at it. Uh, there are many things that are out there in the ether that aren't officially brought to our attention. So how would it have to be officially brought to your Excuse attention? I'm bringing it to your attention. Sure, so, <laughs> this is pretty official. Sure. So we'll go back and take a look at it. But generally, there is some um, authoritative figure that says there is an incident that occurred. We'd like you to look at this. Uh, but in terms of just tracking what may be in the media that says that something occurred at this time, at this place, um, there are probably a, a lot of leads that we would have to follow up on. I don't think we have resources to do that right now. Well, I don't claim to be an authoritative figure, but for what it's worth, I would like you to look in, into it. And sure. If for no other reason, you could dismiss it and say this is not worth wasting resources on. We'll do um, it. 
Hello, all you unexplained ones out there. This is CJ Derringer along with my co-host, Dr. Tim Mounts. We are thrilled to have all of you joining us. We are also so grateful to our guest this evening. Welcome to the show, Bob Salas. Thank you for joining us. Bob has a long history in the UFO world. He has been interviewed by all of the greats and now by us. I'm going to put us on there too as the greats. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. We are so excited to hear your story. We are going to talk to Bob about what he experienced on Maelstrom Air Force Base back in the 60s. We're going to get his insight on what is going on in the world today, and we'll touch on a little bit of everything in between. If you have any comments or questions for Mr. Salas, please do go ahead and send them our way. We do our best to get to all of them. If they have something to do with what we're currently talking about, we'll throw it in the mix. Otherwise, we'll touch base with them at the end of our show. Again, thank you to all of you that are joining us live or listening to our podcast. We're going to dive right in. So Bob, take us back to that initial event that thrusts you into the world of UFOs. Hi, CJ and uh, Dr. Tim. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Um, Well, 1967, I was a missile launch officer at Maelstrom Air Force Base, Montana. On March 24th, me and my commander were on duty at what we call Oscar Flight, about 100 miles to the east of Great Falls. Sometime in the evening, well, we were, first of all, we were about 60 feet underground in a hardened capsule. Hardened meaning uh, supposedly we could be able to withstand uh, a nuclear blast above us. But we had control of 10 nuclear missiles and 60 feet underground. We had about six guards upstairs. And sometime in the evening, I get the first phone call from my security guard, main security guard upstairs. We call him flight security controller. He's the one that was in charge, really, of the ground level, if you will, security. And he said they'd been seeing some strange lights in the sky, making no noise, flying very fast, stopping on a dime. This is the way he described it. Stopping on a dime, reversing course, making 90-degree turns, and... Uh, Noiseless, uh, he said they are not aircraft, sir, and he wanted to report it. Um, I was dumbfounded. I even said, you mean they're UFOs? <laughs> because we had uh, reports in the uh, in the city of Great Falls uh, in the newspaper at the time of people seeing these strange lights um, and reporting them uh, as UFOs. And... Um, I was just joking with him, and he said, well, sir, he was he was dead serious. <laughs> he said, they're not airplanes. I said, okay, well, all right, uh, let me know if anything more interesting happens. I kind of hung up on him. Uh, and then within um, a few minutes, 
uh, he calls back, and this time he's screaming into the phone. He's uh, irrational. He's loud. He's frightened. You can tell by his voice he was very frightened. Um, I got, when I got him to calm down, he said he had all the guards out with their weapons drawn. They were looking at a uh, glowing red-orange object hovering above the front gate uh, of the facility. It was a pulsating red-orange light, uh, very hard to f see into the light, except I had him, you know, try to look into that light, and he said there was a, an oval-shaped object, but he couldn't make out much more. Uh, asked me what he should do. I, I told him, well, make sure you secure the facility, do whatever you have to to secure the facility. Uh, and then he hung up, uh, one of his guards, he said, was injured and he had to hang up, so he hung up the phone. Uh, uh, went then immediately to my commander who was taking a rest break and I woke him up and just as I woke him up, um, all our missiles started going no-go or shut down, uh, one at a time within seconds. Um. Uh, and uh, so we went through our procedures, uh, which included him calling the command post. Uh, they re we reported it. We also had two um, uh, sites, the launch facilities where the missiles were actually located about a mile or so away, uh, in a kind of a ring around this capsule area, which we call the launch control center. Um, and uh, we had incursion lights at two of the facilities. So I called back up, try, uh, asked the guard uh, if the object was still there. He said, no, it just flown off at high speed. Um, and then uh, I told him about this, these incursion lights, and I, I ordered him to send guards out there. The guards uh, reported back later on. They, they got close to the sites and saw UFOs hovering over over those two sites, and uh, we brought them back. I, we just wanted to see what was going on, but they did report UFOs over those two sites. So that's that's the basic story. So, how many guards? You said six guards all saw this UFO. Yes. All of them upstairs, yes. And did you guys, how long were your, your nuclear weapons down? Well, uh, they were probably down for about 24 hours, I'd uh, estimate. Oh. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I, I forgot to mention, when after my commander uh, spoke to the command post, he turned to me and he said, the same thing happened at another site. And I thought it was that evening that the same thing had happened. Uh, but later on, I would find out it was the echo flight incident, which happened eight days earlier. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar what? with. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, what was the protocol for telling somebody what had happened? I mean, did this go straight to the top of the government? What? What happened after for security well, purposes? 
uh, I can't tell you exactly what happened in my case, but in the echo flight case, which I've thoroughly researched, um, uh, the information uh, that they reported went directly to SEC headquarters, Strategic Air Command headquarters, and the chief of staff of the Air Force. And I know this because of the telex that we were get, able to get uh, telegram. Uh, we got uh, under the Freedom of Information Act after I started researching it oh. in earnest. So even you, you had been involved, directly involved with it, and you still had to go through the Freedom of Information Act. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah. The next day, we were ordered to um, report to our squadron commander's office um, uh, when I talked to the guard the next day, uh, he wouldn't didn't want to talk to me. He, he had already been ordered not to speak to me. Uh, uh, but uh, when we got back to the base, uh, we were ordered to report to the squadron commander's office. And there was a man from AFOSI, another officer from Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Mm-hmm who ordered us to, uh, basically ordered us <laughs> to sign a non-disclosure agreement specifically to this case uh, in which we would never speak to anyone about the, what happened. And he, no one, absolutely no one, not even anybody in the Air Force. So um, that we were kind of uh, stifled and we couldn't talk about it to each other after that point. So when hmm, when were you safe to speak of it? <laughs> <laughs> Are you safe to speak of it? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, no, really. Uh, I wasn't, uh, uh, I didn't speak to anyone about this Um until 1994. 94, I was um, in a bookstore in Seattle and um, picked up a book called Above Top Secret by Timothy Good. True story. I opened the book up because that's how I usually um, look to see if I'm interested in buying a book. So I open up to a random page and start reading. And this is page 301. And on that page, there was a short paragraph talking about UFOs shutting down missiles in Montana in 1967. And also mentions 1966. But um, I thought they were talking about my incident. I thought, wow, maybe the Air Force has declassified it. Yeah. So after giving it some thought, since uh, I was still under the NDA, you know, I and by the way, the severe penalties were itemized in that NDA, including a lot of jail time. Mm. At Leavenworth Prison, by the way. It, it, spe- it specified the prison, which is was the major federal, maybe still is, federal prison. Uh, at any rate, uh, I decided to go to uh, MUFON, Mutual UFO Network, mm-hmm. and and uh, see if I could get an investigator to submit a FOIA request, Freedom of Information. And uh, so one gentleman called me back uh, named James Klotz. 
and uh, we worked together to uh, submit FOIA requests. Uh, I told him, don't say anything about UFOs. Just say uh, we're interested in this missile that went, or the incident where missiles went down in Montana. And this was the Echo Fly incident. Um, because I thought that was my incident. That's, that's yeah. the, that was what was, uh, printed up in that story in uh, above top secret. It mentioned the echo flight. So, mm-hmm. uh, we, uh, sent, sent the request and they said, you know, they wrote back and said, uh, this is classified. However, since it's been so long, we're going to declassify it and we'll start sending you documents. So that's what they did. They wow. not not realizing um, that it was a UFO incident. So after I received oh. the documents and they disclosed um, the fact that these missiles went down, um, I I went public and said this was my incident, and there were UFOs involved. So that's when I started to go public in 1994. Okay. So for those of you that are just joining us, we are chatting with Bob Salas, who back in 1964 was working at Maelstrom Air Force Base when a UFO was overhead. 67. Yeah. Oh, 67. Forgive me. March 24th, 1967. Thank you. Back in 1967. And the 10 nuclear missiles you were in charge of were shut down. And immediately afterwards, you were given an NDA not to discuss with anybody what had happened or face jail time, lots of jail time, which is terrifying. How old were you at the time of this incident? I was uh, 26. 26. So yeah, not looking to spend time in prison. That's for sure. (laughs) And what are your thoughts at that moment? Okay. We just saw UFO. They were able to shut down our nuclear missiles. Clearly the government knows something because they don't want us talking about it. What did you think they knew or were hiding? Well, it, of course, it was a very big mystery to me. Um, I, I, I thought that UFOs, well, I, I knew that UFOs were involved. I mean, I, I knew that. Um, and so, but uh, all I had was myself to talk to. I <laughs> I could mull this stuff over, but, uh, you know, it'd drive yourself crazy just talking to yourself about it. So over the years, you know, um, I just started um, forgetting basically what some of the details. And, uh, but in 94, when I saw that uh, statement in that book, uh, it just, it got my interest peaked, uh, of course. Um, and I thought, you know, I was there. I have a responsibility really to the public, uh, because if these are extraterrestrial craft, then, um, the public ought to know about it. So I, I became very highly motivated at that point. And I remain to this day motivated to, um, tell the public the truth and, um, and keep telling it. Bob, I'm curious. I'm sure there was a no-fly zone around Maelstrom. Uh, 
Do you know how big the no-fly zone was? And was per- did you hear if maybe any of these craft were picked up on radar? Well, uh, actually, they were uh, picked up on radar. Uh, we had a, uh, uh, I guess, uh, a combined FAA Air Force radar station there at Malmstrom. Uh, so it happens that on the same evening, um, there was another UFO sighting by a civilian truck driver uh, just outside of uh, Great Falls, about 35 miles, a little town called Belt. He was driving his truck and uh, saw this bright white, uh, white light uh, kind of uh, pacing him uh, to his left. Uh, he stops his truck, uh, gets out, and this light kind of blinks at him. <laughs> Literally, this is what he said. Uh, the light blinked at him and then landed in a, a gully. Uh, so he, he stopped the first uh, car he could uh, they came by and asked him to call the highway patrol. The highway patrol came, and um, and they both saw the object. Uh, uh, this by this time the object had risen uh, above the ground, and then they saw the object land again. So uh, both the highway patrolman and the truck driver saw it. They uh, quickly reported to the um, the sheriff. Uh, Cascade County, and they reported to the Air Force. So the Air Force got involved, uh, and by Lieutenant Colonel Chase, who was the base uh, UFO officer, as a matter of fact, because he was working with the Condon investigation at the time. So he was he was the base operations officer and UFO officer, and there was a large write-up that he made uh, of that evening. Um, about this, what we call the belt sighting. But in that write-up, he talks about um, uh, uh, radar sightings over the base uh, of these objects, or at least one object. And that was written up in the Great Falls Tribune also. So um, as far as snowfly zone, um, I... I don't have any specifics about that. Now, the other gentlemen that witnessed this obviously signed an NDA as well. Have any of them come forward since to talk about it as well? My commander, Fred Mywald, uh, uh, who is deceased now, uh, deceased, I think, 2011. But before he died, he, he certainly supported my story. I've got that on audio tape. And in letters, uh, I've spoken to the Echo Flight crew, uh, both uh, Eric Carlson, the Echo Flight commander, and uh, Walter Fiegel, who's still living, by the way. Um, and they both confirmed, uh, one by letter and the other by um, uh, multiple telephone calls, which I recorded with his permission. Uh, so. I've got recordings, I've got letters from all f- four members of the two crews uh, verifying the story. Yeah. Uh, it is very well documented. And people are very curious about it. 
it, you know, it was even brought up in congressional hearings recently. Um, people want to know more, of course. So I, I do have a question about the people. You you said that he called you on the phone, was, was panicking, frantic, and then had to get off the phone because somebody was injured. Was that person injured in relation to the UFO? No. Um, when I spoke with him, uh, the main guard, he said that he injured his hand. Mm. Uh, he didn't go into detail, but they did have to take him back because he, he cut his hand. Uh, okay. And then I, I got confirmation of that uh, from um, uh, another airman who had been in on security details uh, at Malmstrom. And he said that when they got back to the barracks where, where they all lived, uh, uh, they talked about his injury. And he recalls it was either the fact that um, it was a result of him firing at the object or uh, or cutting himself on barbed wire. So uh, mm. he heard both stories. Okay. Well, Bob, you've said before that you thought that y'all were under attack. And one thing that's come up on this show a few times is this notion of sad, simultaneous atomic destruction or mad, mutual, mutually assured destruction. Did anybody there begin to wonder, like, is this what is happening? We are, we are now under atomic or nuclear attack from another country? Yeah, well... Uh, my uh, impression after hanging up with this guard uh, the second time, you know, second call, when he was very agitated and, and afraid, uh, was that we were under some sort of an attack uh, from the way he was talking. They um, had all the guards out there with their weapons. Um, it just felt like we were under attack. However, I want to emphasize that the um, the UFO um, that shut down our missiles simply disabled uh, the guidance and control system or the guidance system of the of the, of the missiles uh, by sending a signal uh, to a particular piece of hardware called the logic coupler and uh, upset the mm, let's say the connections the connection between the coupler and the actual guidance system. We had an inertial guidance system or gyroscopes, you know, in a package. And so once he upset the, basically upset uh, what's called a, um, uh, a level platform, a level platform that was oriented in a particular direction the missile couldn't be launched because it would not go on target. And that's mm. all, and that's all that happened. Uh, there was nothing, none of the electronics were fried. Uh, everything was put back up on alert. Like I said, within 24 hours, uh, all they had to do was retarget each missile. And the same thing happened at the echo flight, um, eight days earlier. Okay. Um, now, that so do you sense. think that was purposeful? Do you think that that Absolutely. is what was intended to happen? Mm. No question. It was uh, intentional. Uh, 
this was not these were not random um, failures. In fact, uh, one of the documents we got from the Air Force stated uh, that fact. Um, uh, the uh, stated uh, words to the effect that the possibility of of shutting down uh, uh, these ten missiles within seconds of each other was extremely remote. Mm. Extremely remote uh, speaks to the probability of an event. Uh, Essentially, it shouldn't have happened uh, from what we understand. So that's why I've concluded these were extraterrestrial by what I've described. Um, We had absolutely nothing in the Air Force inventory that could have done what they did or the UFO did um, and therefore and and to this of course that was what over 50 years ago right if the if the Russians had had something that could do that uh, certainly they would have bragged about it by now or demonstrated <laughs> yeah. to the world uh, so uh, uh, it must have been from elsewhere off planet Yes. So, and we're going to dive into that a little bit more in terms of extraterrestrial life and alien life in a bit. So those that are tuning in for that part, I do promise it's coming up. I want to wrap up this segment here on what actually happened back in 1967. We've had a few listener questions that I think are important to dive into. Um, You mentioned that the one guy hurt his hand and they thought possibly shooting at, at the object. Did, did several airmen fire at the UFOs? Well, again, I was not able to talk to them. Um, ah, the that's next, right. The next morning. <laughs> yes. The next morning, they did call me, actually, uh, a group of the airmen that were on, on duty that night called me at home. Uh, and I had to tell them I couldn't speak with them and I couldn't meet with them. They wanted me to come meet with them and uh, I couldn't do it yeah. because of the NDA that I had signed. Sure. So my guess is that this next question is one that you won't be able to answer either. And this came from Brenda Kelly, I believe, um, wanting to know, did, did you or anyone else involved have strange dreams or loss of time after this event? And you Mm. probably can't speak about the others because you weren't allowed to talk to them, but how about yourself? So we'll direct that question at you. Well, uh, I don't recall any strange dreams immediately after that incident. Um, I did sense a communication uh, right after I hung up the phone uh, with the guard. I turned to look at my uh, status board. And for some reason, I I got this message that uh, they were going to shut them down. They were going to shut the missiles down. So I, I felt, I sensed that that was kind of a, you know, telepathic communication after thinking mm-hmm. about it for, for some time. Yeah. yeah, I wonder, I wonder if it was. I mean, the military, of course, are trained, highly trained to react certain ways under pressure calm, cool, collected, right? But uh, I'm sure you've seen the movie, The China Syndrome. 
which mm-hmm. turned out to be, you know, at the time, the nuclear industry said that is preposterous. That could never happen. And then shortly after Three Mile Island happened. Mm-hmm. But in that movie, and, and I feel like much like in real life at Three Mile Island, it was quite a panic, right, in mm-hmm. that area. Would mm-hmm. How would you describe what was happening was it a panic you know was everybody kind of well we've been trained for this we've got this or just exactly what was going on well i wouldn't say we were panicked uh, because we did have procedures to go through uh, if we lost uh, well lost i mean had a missile go down for any reason so we had practiced those procedures over and over uh what was new was what was going on topside? Uh, of course, this was brand new. It, I had no idea what was going up there. Like I said, I thought we were under attack. Um, I was concerned. I'll say that. I was not panicked, but I was concerned that uh, what was going on up there. So I couldn't wait to call them back. And, uh, and then... When we got relieved by another crew the next day, uh, I was certainly anxious to go up there and find out and talk to those guys and find out what had happened. Um, so the only one uh, who I could talk to, the other, there were no other guards around when we went up uh, a little elevator go up. Um, he wouldn't, didn't want to talk to me. <laughs> finally, mm-hmm. finally ordered him to talk to me. Um, and uh, all he could do is repeat what he had told me on the phone and that uh, there was this glowing red object pulsating and that there was this oval-shaped uh, form inside the light. And then my commander, who uh, probably sensed that the guard had been told not to talk um, uh, you know, pushed me out the door basically, and we got on our helicopter and uh, flew back, and uh, and that was that. We went to the squad commander after we got out of there. Uh, no more talk. Did you stay at this base much longer? To be continued. You've been listening to all things unexplained. If you liked this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating and leave us a review. If you would like to hear more All Things Unexplained, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our show depends on the support of listeners like you. You can support the show by visiting our Linktree account at linktree.com backslash A-T-U podcast. If you can't get enough of us, please check us out at allthings-unexplained.com. A special thanks to our producer, director, sound mixer, editor, and the man who wears far too many hats. No, seriously, he has a lot of hats. Dr. Tim Mounts. Without you, we couldn't keep the lights on. Thanks for listening to All Things Unexplained. <laughs>